VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. People that are very wealthy, if they only have wealthy friends, it doesn't hurt them. Yeah. But if, if you're not wealthy and most of your friends are within your same socioeconomic class, that's where you'll stay. You know, getting those opportunities and getting that information and getting that motivation and is really pretty vital to to mobility yo technology what is it all about hello and welcome to danny in the valley your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech i'm your host danny fortson and this week we headed down to stanford university which i just love going to because it seems always to be sunny when i go there there's palm trees, there's Spanish-style roofs. It's just lovely. But I went there to talk about friendship. More to the point, networks, friendly, professional, or otherwise. And to do that, I sat down in the office of Matthew Jackson. And Jackson is an economist who has spent many, many years studying networks, how they work. And he's recently written a book called The Human Network. And it's fascinating because what it does really is pick apart the role obvious and not so obvious of networks in our lives so basically how who we know can affect our health our wealth prosperity or lack of it and of course we're in the belly of the beast social media and these are basically the world's most powerful accelerants of network effects for both good and obviously for bad. And so what Jackson does is really just take a forensic look at all of that, pull it all out, and explain what matters, what's really happening. And I think you'll find it really illuminating, especially when you think about where you are in your life or in your career or whatever, how you got there and how you may want to steer yourself or others, like your kids, in a new direction, potentially. I think you're going to enjoy this one, so I'm going to stop talking and hand you over now to Matthew Jackson, Stanford economist and author of The Human Network. Enjoy. That's it. We're live. Okay, great. (laughs) So, networks. One of the things you put in the book, which I thought was really interesting, which I think kind of sets the scene for people who haven't read the book, around this experiment that was done by the government in the 90s around the vouchers. Sure. So if you could explain what what it was and what happened. Yeah, definitely. The, so that's the study you're referring to is called the Moving to Opportunity right. Study. And it was uh, done in the mid-90s. And they picked, I remember it was about f- a little over 4,000 families and they sorted them into three groups. And these were all low-income families. And they put one-third into a group, uh, a program where they got vouchers to pay for their housing. 
but they had to move to a wealthier neighborhood in order to be able to use those vouchers. That was a requirement. Yeah, that was right. exactly. And, and so then, and then their, their rent would be paid for. There was a second group that they just gave vouchers to pay for their rent, but they didn't have to move at all. They could stay where they were. And then there was a third group that they didn't do anything to. And, and then basically the study follows what happened to those families over time. And there have been a number of, st- of follow-up studies yeah. by different researchers. It was clear that there were health differences for the kids and mental health and, and physical health. It wasn't until much later that the sort of long-term economic consequences became clear. There's a study by Raj Chetty, Nathan Hendren, and, and Larry Katz. And what they did is they followed up. They, they, got, they got income information about some of the people who moved the, as yeah. kids. And basically, if you took an eight-year-old and move them from the poorer neighborhood to the wealthier neighborhood, their lifetime earnings would go up by about $300,000 was the estimate. Right. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that's kind of amazing. It's, it is. It's, it's pretty astounding. And it was also amazing that, you know, if you took the 18-year-old and you moved them, you didn't see that at all. Also, you didn't see much of an effect at all for the families that stayed put and got the rent. So it wasn't that, that they were just getting extra income and paying for their rent. Right. It was actually the the movement to these other neighborhoods that made the difference. Do you have a sense of why that is? I, I think there's several things that, that are true, and, and we're actually doing follow-up studies. I'm doing studies with two of those authors now. Um, with that group? Yeah, with, with some of with Raj and, and Nathan. But and of and that group other. of people on that pro- no, program? No, no, we're actually oh, doing okay. with other data. Okay. Um, and we're trying to figure out exactly what it was that led to these differences. And, and I think there's basically two things you can point to. One is just the general peer group and what it does to people's attention. You know, what are they paying attention to? What are they doing? If all your friends are studying for SATs and then planning to go to university, then that's what you do. If right. none of your friends are doing that, then it's pretty hard to actually do that. And the second is just basic information. Even if you wanted to, to go to university and you wanted to figure out how to do it, if none of your friends are doing it, you don't really have the information about what, what are the SATs, how do I study for them, what's the, what's the value of going to college, why should I do that instead of something else. And the something else is, are, are always there in your right. day-to-day lives. It's amazing how uninformed people can be about you know, what the prospects are for, for different tracks that they could take. It piqued my interest for, well, for a lot of reasons, but one is because here a subset of people are obsessed with this idea of universal basic income. Especially as we go forward yeah. in automation, et cetera. Like yeah, this is, yeah. a, you know, people need X amount of money just to get by or yeah. whatever. But it's this idea that we'll give people, we'll just kind of throw money at people and this will solve a lot of these problems. But yeah. that research seems to kind of fly in the face of it. Right, right. I, 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 st- I You know, the way I like to think about it is there's symptoms and things like universal basic income, other kinds of redistribution programs, uh, you know, various aid packages, those things treat symptoms. If you've got a, some disease and, yeah. and, you know, you deal with a pain and so forth. But that doesn't change the root cause of these things. That's not the preventative medicine. Exactly. And, and you see that just from the fact that some of these people got vouchers and they paid for their rent and so forth. They become wealthier, but it didn't make a difference in the kids' lives in the long run. Right. It's more the sort of basic information and what people are thinking and what they understand and, and how they see their opportunities and, and whether they have those opportunities that matters. And that that's much harder to fix. Yeah. And so thinking of like the kind of the problems or problematic aspects of networks, 
we are here in the kind of the um, ground zero of the social network revolution. Yeah. You highlight a couple things. One being, you know, we're more connected than ever, but we're also in a way more segregated yeah. than ever. Can you just talk about kind of what is driving that and where you see that going and where it's, you see it kind of taking us? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, as, as you point out, there's sort of two major trends. And I think what you can think of these days is, as a lot of these platforms and social media and, and various technologies that we have available, it just sort of amplifies human tendencies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're very social beings, so it allows us to do more of that interacting. But we're also very, I guess you say, homophilistic is the word that comes to mind. But No the, one will know what that means. Yeah, so, so homophily <laughs> is, yeah, exactly. So um, homophily is a term that, that two sociologists coined in the 1950s. Um, and and uh, homophily means, you know, basically love of same. Right. And it means that we tend overwhelmingly, no matter what dimension you look at, people tend to associate with other people who have similar backgrounds and, and views. And, you know, it happens on age, religion, ethnicity, um, gender. It's, it's sort of no matter how, how you put people together, they tend to start sorting based on those characteristics. Yeah. What happens when you put that together with algorithms that are on various media that, that can find what you like and, and help sort things, that just makes it easier to sort on these dimensions and to find people who have exactly the same viewpoints, have the same hobbies, have the same background. That tendency means even though we could be getting a more connected network over time, at the same time it could be more segregated. Having redundant information and, and you know being pressured by people who have the same kinds of viewpoints, that, that can be exacerbated by the modern technology rather than sort of freed up by it. I know you've done some work around kind of Understanding networks when you're kind of talking about doing um, microfinance in the developing world and trying to find the right people within a small community so that everybody hears about it right. or vaccines. Right. To your point around people finding kind of their tribe, wherever it may be online, Yeah. you have things like the anti-vaccination crowd. Right, right. Because I think that's a really interesting – it helps people find – other people with really fringe slash dangerous views. Yeah. I haven't personally looked at that aspect. I think it's it's pretty clear that, you know, you can look at basic trends and you see polarization increasing for a bunch of reasons. And I think some of them economic and fundamental, but others certainly have to do with the media in terms of how people are getting information and their mm. ability, as you're pointing out, to sort of select and, and find people with viewpoints. And the internet, it has given everybody in the world a microphone in some way, and then it becomes much more difficult to sort through all that information. And so we have to rely on algorithms and other ways to start sorting through things. And those algorithms are designed to make us happier and to find what we like. They're usually being put forth by some kind of business that's yeah. a service to you. And, and that those services are usually, look, what do, you, what do I want to hear? What do I want to look at? And, and they're very good at discovering what our, our preferences are. And that just, you know, sort of puts our homophily on steroids to some extent. And we're not very good at understanding that our that the information we're hearing isn't a full sample. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's hard. Have the likes of, you know, Google, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, you know, the social network companies, which are clearly wrestling with this issue, like trying to kind of break people out of their filter bubbles or their echo chambers or whatever the word is you want to use. 
are they talking to people like you about that? Or do you, do you know how alive they are to, or like how kind of broadly they're thinking about, okay, we need to, these algorithms need to be set up with a different, with different parameters or with a different target in mind because this is where it's leading. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly they've reached out. So suppose that I want to put in a fake news filter, right? Yep. So, so what I want to do is sort of sort out um, good news and, and, yeah. and fake news. Okay, well, I, an algorithm is not, it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. So take, for instance, humor and irony is something that we're, humans are very good at. It, it's not something that's easy to train an algorithm to detect. Yeah. And so when you start you know, having an algorithm try to figure out what's, what's false and what's true and what should be filtered out, it starts filtering things out like the onion. <laughs> it, it, it looks it, it's all yeah, these stories that, yeah. that we find humorous and we we, we understand immediately that it's it's yeah. done in some but without the humor filter it's just fake news yeah right. exactly and and so it's there's a lot of reasons that some of these major media companies have too much power and and too much control of our information i'm not sure that we want to sort of force these companies to be doing censorship and, mm. and trying to figure out what information should be passed along and what information shouldn't. They're large monopolies, and they have economies of scope and, and scale in terms of the users. And so there's a lot of reasons that they're becoming very economically powerful. But I'm not sure that censorship is sort of the yeah. right direction that we should be pushing them. Which direction should we be pushing? I think part of it is just the information that they have and the control of that information is very valuable. And yeah. Right now, they're getting monopolies on that and effectively controlling advertising to a large extent. And, and so there's a, a lot that sort of goes on the basic economic and business side that, you know, these are companies that aren't, it's not a, a competitive environment. And so that you do have to worry about them exercising monopoly powers and, mm. and you know, not providing the services and goods that people really want ultimately. But on the other hand, censoring people's speech and, and so forth, that, that's much more difficult and it's not. So is it kind of, as an economist, how do you square that circle? Is it just like, okay, I mean, kind of the blunt object of break them up? Yeah, I think, means. you know, so it's hard because the, you know, the value that they provide is really that they connect people to, yeah. together. And, and, you know, you can't sort of say, look, we want 20 Twitters or 20 Facebooks or a bunch of Pinterests or so forth. So breaking them up is, is difficult. But at the same time, you know, when you look at our property rights and, and legal system, it's really from a past century mm-hmm. or maybe two centuries ago. Yeah, yeah. And we're dealing with the value of information, which is something that's now being transacted that wasn't sold in the same way, personal information and yeah. other kinds of things. It's not even and, a physical good. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's something that, that, that's really fundamentally different than goods that have been traded before. And, and we don't have, I, I don't think, the intellectual property rights and the the laws that give people who should own this stuff and how. And I think Europe right now is sort of pushing towards the point that you own everything, then the companies have to ask you for it. The U.S. hasn't gone there yet. And and Europe actually, you know, I, I think what it's amounted to so far is just click on a box and give yes. them permission. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, I think, you haven't moved the kind of the repository of information to my ownership. Yeah, exactly. That'll take decades probably to figure out yeah. how we should do it. Because one of the other things I found interesting was also, you talked about polarization, but the kind of visualization of the Senate. Yeah. If you just explain, because for people who aren't obviously li- listening and can't see, it's like, 
a lot of the book has, you know, you have um, these kind of dot graphs, which lines in between them that show kind of how people are linked or whatever. Right. But if you explain kind of how that evolved, uh, the voting and where it is now, I think it's really instructive. So the diagrams you're referring to are look at co-voting in the Senate over different years. And I, I, there's two graphs there. And one goes back to the 90s. And what it does is it you have 100 senators there, and then you have a, a link between them. They're connected to each other. If they voted more often the same way on bills than against each other. Right. So if, if they agreed more than they disagreed, then you put a relationship between them. And what the diagram does is sort of sort them out as to who's voting together and so forth. And you can see a split between Democrats and Republicans, you know, they sort of line up on two sides. But at that point in time, about a little more than 80% of the senators were connected to each other. So there were people that didn't vote the same way, but right. there was still a lot of co-voting across. Common ground. Yeah, common ground. And the graph was fairly cohesive. Yeah. Fast forward to 2015, and this is actually before the 2016 election, basically you see a bifurcation where, yeah. you know, now it's a little more than 50% vote the same way, but that 50% is almost always within party, and there's almost yeah. no connections across well, yeah, the Well, yeah, if you so. think of it like the, before it was almost like, you know, like an orange or something. Yeah. And then now the orange is split in two. Exactly. It sort of looks like, you know, cellular division or yeah. something where the cells splitting yeah. into two pieces. And, and you know, I think that that graph, it's hard to say what's causal and so forth, but because a lot of these bills are endogenous, to, you know, they somebody puts them up. But it, it certainly shows us that our, our sort of feeling that things are becoming more polarized in various ways is is corroborated by by some of the data. Why? Why? Yeah. So I think you know there's <laughs> yeah um, small question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So so there's two, two major trends, and I think one's economic, and then the other one's the social networks. And l- let's start with the sort of basic okay. economics. And I think the basic economics explain why you're seeing the same trends around the world, which is this sort of you know, hollowing out of the middle class and the fact that modern technology is increasing the productivity of of highly skilled workers. Mm -hmm. It sort of complements them and makes them more productive. So, you know, if I'm a machine learning person, now I can do more than ever before. And it's replacing people. We used to work on assembly lines or even, you know, people that used to do service jobs like being a travel agent or something like this. What's happening is is half the population is being replaced and displaced, and the other half is being enhanced. And so you're seeing the, the gap between people that have college education and don't. You know, wage gaps, for instance, have, have more than doubled in the past uh, four decades. And That wage gap has more than doubled. Yeah, yeah. So when you look at the college to non-college wage gap, oh, wow. it used to be 50% in around 1980. Now it's over 100%. So that that gap has has just gone up dramatically, and and that and that's happening around the world. So it, right. it's it's not just the U.S., but it's Western Europe. And then when you look at what's going on in Austria and Hungary and a bunch of countries, yeah. it feeds people looking for a better life, and and that happens both on the left and the right and of the political spectrum. Yeah. That's the basic underlying trend. And then when you put it together with homophily, and these people tend to to be interacting together yeah they're they're all talking to each other and so forth then you know then it's not hard to figure out things like brexit where half the population doesn't even know that the other half the population wants out and is unhappy and and the other half thinks well this is you know the only way we can do things and well it's funny i was living in the uk at the time and i lived in the uk long enough to have a vote 
I voted against, as did, you know, most of London. Mm-hmm. But London is an island within the island. Yeah, yes. And, you know, I'm guilty of this, as a lot of my friends were, of just like, thinking, well, there's no way. There's just no way it's going to happen. Right. And then, of course, it did. Because yeah. to your point, it's like, you know, this kind of polarization of, like, people are actually living and exist in very different worlds, even on the, in the same place. Yeah. You know, even though you see something vaguely in the polls, if nobody you've ever talked to has a certain perspective, then it's pretty hard to believe that half the population has that perspective, right? Yeah. And we don't realize how insular our, our day-to-day lives are in terms of the people we usually interact with. Yeah. That's sort of the basic feature that, that can feed this kind of polarization and you know, then we end up with very different viewpoints and different perspectives on things, and, and we have a hard time understanding why the other group believes what yeah. they believe. So what also just kind of kills, which I've talked about before on the podcast, the kind of the death of empathy. If everybody thinks the same thing you do, you do, you think deep. Anybody who doesn't think that, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. There's no kind of like, well, I can kind of understand where they're coming from if you don't know anybody like that. You're just going, right. no, they're just wrong. Right, right. And the more polarized it becomes, it sort of feeds on itself, and yeah. it, it, it you know makes it harder for people to communicate with each other, and, and right. they sort more. And so it's the economic kind of splintering, married to the kind of social network steroids of people finding their tribe. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and mostly communicating, and, and then also having these you know basic limitations that we have in terms of really being able to judge where information comes from and. We tend to double count things, so if we hear things a hundred times, we start to believe it. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So I want to talk about one other kind of macro thing and then go down to the kind of micro personal level. But the other thing that I thought was interesting is you're talking about um, wars. Yes, yeah. Wars looked at through the prism of networks. So if you could kind of explain what it, what you studied and what you found, I think it's really interesting. Yeah. So there's a nice data set that goes back to just after the Napoleonic Wars. So you can you can study wars going for for now two centuries. Mm-hmm. And what the the sort of amazing fact is that I hadn't realized until really get digging into these data are that you know if you look post World War II, you look at 1950 forward. 
we basically have roughly a, a tenth as many wars as in the period before 1950. And a tenth. It, a tenth, yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, you can play with the data in different ways, yeah, yeah, defining yeah. wars and so forth. Yeah. It's hard to get that to disappear. You just can't make it go, mm. go away. And, you know, this was a study I did with a, a former student, Stephen Nye, and we sort of dug into the data, and then we started looking at, at trade networks and trying to figure out what makes countries ally with with each other, and and why do we go to war, and what you know what yeah. what enables us to to not go to war with each other. Basically, when you get down to it, the trade networks have really densified dramatically. When you look at that same period, yeah, globalization is just you know it used to have two and a half trade partners that were substantial. Now we're as a country, as a country, and now we're over ten and a half per country. Typically, there's never been a war between two countries that trade more than $10 billion with each other a year. I mean, and that's a Is pretty, that right? Yeah, it's a really low... That feels like... It's amazing, yeah. That so, feels impossibly small. It is, $10 yeah, billion yeah. Dollars is not much these days. Exactly. So it's, it's, it's really tiny. And basically, when you look at the major wars in the last few decades, the Congo Wars and so forth, mm. they, they involved you know, countries that, that weren't trading with each other. Right. And if you look at the conflict in the Middle East these days... None of the countries trade with each other. Right. You know, the highest neighbor of Israel on its trade partner list is Jordan, which comes in at number 11, something like that. Right. A lot of the conflict is between countries that just don't have something gluing them together. When you look at other things, you can factor in nuclear arms, which, you know, is something else that came in the 1950s. It doesn't really explain, once you really look at trade, there's not that many countries that are nuclear powered, right. the correlation is really there when you look at the trade patterns. And you can also look at democracies versus non-democracies and everything. Effectively, trade just swamps everything in explaining, you know, peace. And it, it means that, you know, the, the globalization, as you put it, is, is something that has really benefited the world a lot in terms of uh, increased peace. So how worried should we, we, we be then? Because it feels like we're kind of trying to put that into reverse. Yeah, I mean, I guess trade wars can lead to an erosion. You know, we're, we're still at points where the trade war, the, the trade is strong enough that it would, yeah. be, it, it would be really crazy for, for countries to go to war with each other. But it's easy for us to forget how important trade was and, and how it sort of cemented relationships between different countries. And, and thinking of different European countries going to war these days, you can't imagine it happening. No. But it was just you know, five, six decades ago where it was quite imaginable. And it's possible that war is going to morph into something else in terms of other kinds of conflict that we'll have going on. Yeah. And the more that countries have each other's interests in, in mind, the less that they have incentives to be manipulating each other. I, I don't think trade can erode so quickly and so much that we're, we're back to where we were before 1950. Our trade levels are a factor of five higher than they were then. Yeah. We'd have a long way to go. But I do think that we could lose each other's best interests more easily. Well, that's what's so interesting. Uh, so you're talking about globalization being a kind of this great force for peace. But globalization is also helping lead to the hollowing out of this middle, which is yeah. pushing us apart. Do you have a sense of which force is kind of, for lack of a better word, winning? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's hard. <laughs> I, I think, you know, it's always the, the good comes with the bad in yeah. a lot of these situations. and. And globalization has this, you know, it's, it's connected us financially a lot more. So we have more financial problems in terms of hiccups in one country can cause yeah. markets to, to dive in another country. And it's hard 
when we have new technologies that do all these things for us to avoid these kinds of problems. And I think, you know, one of the difficulties with the current technological changes are, if you go back to situations where agriculture was being replaced by, by mechanization and so forth, well, people moved into manufacturing. There was mm-hmm. a new industry growing. And then when people were moving out of manufacturing, they were moving into services. And now when you start hollowing out services, it's harder to figure out where people go unless they become better educated and better able to use the technologies that that we have available. And so I think it puts more and more of a premium on education these days as as something that that is necessary to make sure that your economy can function and, and provide for everybody. And we're still at, you know, like a minority of the population that's, that's highly educated and able to take advantage mm. of the technology. And, and we need to be at a, a majority before the, you know, the wages will start to come into line and before people will, will all be earning a, a reasonable Yeah, income. well, that's what's interesting here in, in California, in particular, the Bay Area in particular. It's like, you know, good education now is a question. It's a, it's a monetary question. Yeah. Because a lot of cities, I live in Oakland, a lot of s- public schools are just terrible. Yeah. And you either can send your kid to a bad school and hopefully try to supplement it just by being an active, involved parent, or, you know, a lot of people don't have time for that. So it leads to my question of like, okay, let's, boiling it down to like an individual level, knowing the power of networks, like what do you do to kind of get in that right trajectory into that right stream? Are there a few things where you're like, well, if you have this amount of friends or you have this type of friend or you, you know, what is it that you can really determines positive outcomes or puts you on that path? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, the one thing I take away personally from this is uh, what I call putting yourself in uncomfortable situations, meaning break the tendency to, to just go, as you put it, with your own tribe or yeah. with your own group and actually try to put yourself into situations where you're meeting other people, you're you're getting to know other people, you're connecting with people who you normally wouldn't connect with. Just as an economist, it's important for me to talk to people in sociology and to comp- talk to yeah. people in computer science and go to conferences that aren't economics conferences. And, and that actually expands what I know. And, you know, when you look at, at say, schools and so forth, as a kid, you know, how do you tell a, a teenager or, a, you know, yeah. somebody in middle school to, to broaden their horizons and meet new people? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, totally. It's difficult. And some of the graphs in the book look at, you know, homophily within schools. There was sort of a very interesting push in the 1960s and 70s inside the U.S. to sort of build some larger high schools because those could allow you to group have a big mixed population. Yeah, exactly. So on paper, you'd look very integrated, right? You could, yeah. you could, you know, mix different populations together. But then when you looked at what happened inside the high schools, those were the most segregated schools in terms of friendship patterns. One thing that can be done is we can not only think about the funding inside high schools and so forth, but think about how do you design a high school that mixes students together more in terms of having different socioeconomic characteristics, wealthier kids with poorer kids or people from different ethnicities and so forth. I think the answer to that is build smaller sub-high schools within a high school where they're they're forced to interact with each other. Right. That's hard, but I think... You know, we, we a lot a lot of times we just think about what's the curriculum in the school and, yeah. and and throwing money at it. But a lot of it is, what are the kids doing? Are they what are they studying for? What do they see as their aim and their goals? And they often get that from from the people around them, and the parents get that from the parents around them, right? They mm-hmm. talk with the other parents in the same classes and so forth. And it's changing a mindset of a whole group of people. 
And in terms of like in the professional world, does the same thing apply in terms of like, you know, being more successful or more happy? Put yourself in positions that you wouldn't normally be in. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot of evidence. Famous sociologist Ron Burt, who's looked a lot at how do we identify people who are very successful, say, in business, and yeah. what do their positions look like? And reverse engineer yeah. how they got there. And one thing that you can, you can point to is they often are people who sit between different groups. So if you look at their network, you know, we're talking about these sort of segregation patterns where you've got groups that don't really communicate much. If you're actually a person that sits between them, and is sort of a, a vital connector between them, right. then you have information that other people don't normally get. So, you know, you can see what new trends are in another area and, and, and import those. Or also, you become an important intermediary where people come to you to try and find information out. And so there's a bunch of reasons that that, you know, makes people more successful. But people who connect to other groups tend to have, you know, more diverse information and and better opportunities yeah. and, and a whole you know series of things that comes along with those kinds of connections. So if you have friends, are you going to do better in life? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, generally, yes. And in particular, having a higher variety of friendships across socioeconomic divides is is pretty vital. People that are very wealthy, if they only have wealthy friends, it doesn't hurt them. Yeah. But if if you're not wealthy and most of your friends are within your same socioeconomic class, that's where you'll stay. You know, getting those opportunities and getting that information and getting that motivation and is really pretty vital to, to mobility. And so are you optimistic, though, given, given these, you know, very powerful forces pushing us all kind of in the opposite direction of what you're talking about? You know, I think the more we understand it, the more we can... And part of the reason for writing this book was was really to help people understand what some of those basic forces are and to, mm. to look down at the roots of these kinds of issues and problems and, and try to figure out what we can do to, to make the world better from, from a really basic point of view. And that takes a lot of effort and it'll take time and, and it's, there's not easy fixes. You know, just throwing money at these problems isn't the answer. No. It's, it's really figuring out how to, how to enrich the information and the interactions that people have. We can't do this moving to opportunity on a world scale, right, where we take everybody and scramble neighborhoods around. So we have to figure out. But it's that spirit, though, right? Going back to the universal basic income example, like that's fall well and good, but doesn't feel like it's really kind of moving the ball. I think it'll help the symptoms and sort of raises the really minimum level that people can live at. But it doesn't mean that if you're poor, your your child's going to have a better opportunity to, to sort of break out of that poverty cycle. Yeah. I think it means that, you know, we should be thinking more on early childhood education, making it easy for parents to, to meet other parents and to figure out how to educate their kids and what, what's involved. And, you know, there's a whole series of things we can do at that level, but then also just helping people meet other people who have done well for themselves and their children. So is that like, um, mentorship. Yeah, I, I think, you know, on, a, on sort of a, a larger scale, one thing that's nice and powerful about networks is if you do this with a few people, that information can then actually translate to others. So you can also use that power and the fact that these people then can become role models within their own communities and so forth. For instance, we're doing studies now on vaccination and just trying to figure out how to get people to vaccinate their children. This is in Haryana in, in northern India. Yeah. You know, is there looking, resistance there, or is it just uh, people don't know about it? 
you know, people know about vaccinations and they have some information and they might be skeptical of it and they're often skeptical of government programs to begin with. Right. And then, and so we're trying to figure out how does it matter how you get the information into a community? Does it have to come in through trusted individuals? Does it have to come in through a lot of people? Does it have to come in through a few people? How does it depend on what they view as the program and the dangers of the program and so forth? And you can actually get a lot of leverage out of a few key people if they're sort of well-placed. So right. if you do find central people in the network and you find people who other people can relate to. Is that to. effectively the popular folks? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. It's popular, but popular in a more complicated way. So when you actually look at people who are just have lots of friends, they aren't necessarily the best people for diffusing information. You really want to go to people who are well-connected in terms of having friends who are well connected and right that becomes a you know sort of an interesting how do i say well if i'm well connected if my friends are well connected and they're well connected if their friends are well connected but you can make that precise and it sort of means that i have good reach in a network right it's sort of branching out and not just looking at how many friends i have it's the uh, the friendship paradox yeah yeah well the friendship paradox plays into this yeah so you, you do can you explain see, what that is yeah it, it's a fascinating thing you know we all have this feeling that other people are more popular than we are if you follow people on t- twitter the yeah. people you follow tend to have, on average, 10 times more followers than, than, than you do. Yeah. And the friendship paradox is, is simple in terms of mathematics. It, it's just the people who are the most popular have the most friends, and so they're going to be counted as friends by the most people. Yeah. So the more friends you have, if somebody has 10 friends and somebody has two friends, then the person who has 10 friends shows up as a friend for 10 people and, and just gets counted more often. And so the most popular people are being looked at as friends the most often. That means that our our networks aren't just random selections from the population. Most of us tend to be friends with more popular people and less popular people are are less often in our friendship groups. So we're less popular than our friends. Yeah, and uh, that's sort of, for one thing, it would just be sort of a trivial fact. But it turns out that people who are more popular do act systematically differently than people who are less popular. And that difference means that then the way that, you know, a lot of times we look for the people around us, that's the way we think about getting our ideas of what social norms should be and and how we should behave and so Mm -hmm. forth. And so, for instance, there's been a bunch of studies in, say, in middle school, where you look at the the first students to try alcohol, smoking, drugs, and so forth, and early teens tend to be people who are the most popular students. Right, they're the ones interacting the most, socially yeah. active, and so forth, and they tend to be doing these things more early. That also then means that now the other kids get this distorted view of the world because they're all friends with the popular kids, and therefore they view this as normal behavior. They think everybody's doing it. Yeah, exactly. And again, that's that dynamic is just completely ramped up online. Yes. Yeah. 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 You know, when you get to Twitter and things like that, then then you've got small numbers of people with huge numbers of followers, and yeah. what's normal can can quickly um, be distorted. That kind of explains a lot. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah no, it's a, it's yeah, it's fascinating, and I think the more that we are aware of these basic kinds of facts, how split our network is, how easy it is for us to overcount things that we hear, yeah. you know, repeatedly and. It could be that, you know, a bunch of my friends are all watching the same Twitter feed, and that's why I keep hearing something. And Yeah. Um, so everybody's repeating the same 
BS yeah. from the same source. Yeah, yeah. And and so the more that we have understandings of this, the the more that we can help overcome it. But you know, as humans we're just we're basic counters, right? We count information and, and that tends to be the way that we think about something and if I hear something twice as often as something else and I tend to believe it more. Are there any other things aside from put yourself in positions you wouldn't otherwise be in to put yourself on a in a kind of a better place than you might otherwise be? One thing that is, uh, and this is harder, we form relationships for lots of different reasons. Mm. And it could end up that we formed a relationship for one reason that ends up being useful for another reason. You know, so that some friend from high school years ago ends up being important in getting you a job at some point. You know, you go back to a reunion and you're yeah. looking for work and you say, oh, you know, I happen to be looking for work. Oh, I know somebody and that helps put you in touch with somebody. And, you know, understanding how important relationships are for lots of different reasons and realizing that we rely on some people for, you know, coworkers that we work with on in teams on projects. And then we have other people that we hang out with for hobbies. And then we have family and friends. And But they're, they're all serving multiple purposes at once. And I think having a more holistic view of all the things that people are important for and, and you know, that I, I think can make us as better friends and realizing how valuable people are for, for lots of different reasons. And you know, In other words, m- make an effort with people who might not be necessarily or what you would consider like your inner circle or whatever. Yeah, just enriching our lives, able to put us in touch with information and opportunities and things that we normally wouldn't have had. And, yeah. and that's, that's something that the more you know, looking at it in that perspective. And it's not, I don't think we want to be sort of Machiavellian about it where we're (laughs) going out and choosing our friends and and so forth. But it just means that that when we meet somebody, we should be more aware of all the things that they can bring us and and how valuable a a person they can be. Basically have an open mind. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, it's really interesting also just the, the kind of the tendency to kind of gravitate toward the people that are most like you. Covering business and now tech out here, um, you look at like the boards of big companies, yeah, or venture capital, which is like ninety five percent dudes. It does feel like that that network effect is very powerful and kind of self defeating, right? And I, I think naturally we're sort of suspicious of people who have different viewpoints, as you mentioned earlier. And I think when you get into a business environment then it's even more difficult to sort of overcome these biases because you sort of think, look, I have a, a pretty good idea of how businesses should be run and how, how they should make money. And then here's this person saying something completely different. Why would I mm. want them on the board? You know, they might drive us in this wrong yeah. wrong direction where instead what a board should be is is a group that can bring different perspectives to problems and, and help have internal discussions and so forth. And you know, then it's it's really difficult for us to put aside those biases and, and actually think, well, maybe this person will have some some perspectives that will enrich the discussion. That's not easy. Especially in the UK, there's, you know, trying to get women on boards. You know, there's kind of various calls for quotas, et cetera, yeah. as some way to kind of redress exactly this dynamic. Yeah. And some people think that's a terrible idea. Some people think it's imperfect, but a great way to get where we probably should be it feels like a, a bit like you're trying to push water uphill. 
Yeah, um, you know, to some extent, the feedback effects in these can be useful too, though. So, so if you do get more women on boards, then more women can bring more women on boards, and, yeah. and you know that sort of can can help. And also, those companies can can do things that they wouldn't have normally done and move in directions they wouldn't have necessarily you know chosen to move before. And and so, it, I think the dynamic can be enriched. And sometimes, when you've got really strong segregation patterns the only way to get through those is actually have some kind of affirmative action and yeah and so it's you know it's a it's a pretty drastic way to move but sometimes it's necessary and i guess in terms of businesses it's a, it's difficult for people when they believe that they're making the right decisions for good reasons to to have you know to keep that open mind that's that's not easy it does feel like when you kind of need an affirmative action to counter the kind of the filter bubble effect or the kind of the social media algorithmic steroidal effect. Yeah. And I don't know what that what form that would take. It's like an accelerant in a fire. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was you know, a bunch of different media have actually tried something where they give you, a, you know, sort of your normal feed, say news feed mm. or something else, and then you can also click on a, a, a different opposing view or... I think they haven't been <laughs> very successful. So they sort of offer that up, but then people don't click on it. And I find myself, you know, now that I'm more aware of this through my studies, I spend a lot more time reading a diversity of media. And I'm becoming increasingly aware of how much things are, are designed and catered to certain populations and audiences. And, and that, you know, whether it's intentional or unintentional, that produces news and feeds that people tend to to like and yeah. to agree with and and it's it's difficult to break out of that as my indulgence and then i'll leave you two more important matters i have a three-year-old yeah and i have a one-year-old i'm trying to set them on the path for success <laughs> so in terms of the stuff that you are looking at yeah is there things that you know like you would say to like parents now like you should really think about doing this or yeah. putting your kids in this type of situation or whatever it may be to kind of to basically counteract a lot of these forces we're talking about but also just yeah put them in a play you know position for success yeah i mean i think the biggest thing is for them to to teach kids both empathy so really understanding each other it, it's very difficult for kids to learn right yeah. they're, they're, you know you're naturally it's at certain ages, like you say, a three-year-old, you're sort of like becoming aware of the world. Yeah, he's and, not very empathetic for yeah, no, his exactly. one-year-old brother right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can control the world suddenly, and that's that's yeah. what you want to do, right? And, and I think you know, teaching empathy is really difficult but very important. And I think also empathy is such a valuable skill because it allows you to, to understand where people are coming from, and and that helps you have a different viewpoint of what information you're getting and, yeah. and what's, you know, what's coming at you and why people are acting the way they are. And I think the more aware of that they are, the more value, you know, the more they'll value other kids' friendship and, and you know, it's difficult. Anybody growing up, it's hard. You know, friendships yeah. are really difficult things and especially, you know, kids can be very uh, catty in some yep. ways. It's very obvious from a bunch of studies that, non-cognitive skills can be as important as cognitive ones, right? So, mm. you know, teaching kids perseverance, but teaching them social skills and teaching them to understand others and to yeah. value what others bring to the table, that's so important. And and that can help them diversify their friendships and yeah. and to look to other people that they wouldn't normally do that. And and so I, I would think empathy is a really key, key concept then. 
I got my work cut out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's hard, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, as a parent, I always think, you know, helping kids think through things themselves. You always want to sort of tell them how things yeah. are and, and so forth. You know, teaching them by allowing them to make the choices and then sort of asking them, why did it work? Why didn't yeah. it work? You know, it's so hard, but it's it can be very fun and rewarding. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a fascinating time. I, it's an amazing time to be a researcher, especially with the yeah. sort of explosion that's gone on in the past few decades of this stuff and the avail- availability of data. And Is uh, there, you know, this isn't the first time technology has come along and changed everything. Yeah. I mean, is this different? Right, right. And I guess the question is what, you know, in, yeah, in the book I sort of talk. From the yeah, printing to, press. Etc. Yeah, exactly. A printing press and you have the telegraph and telephones yeah. and people, even before that, people writing letters and things. Um, so communication has changed a bunch of times. I think one thing that is a little different this time is the way that algorithms are playing into it. Mm. And that's a little different. And, and so, for instance, now, you know, every time you go on a, a platform like LinkedIn comes up, pops in with friend suggestions yep. and new links you should be forming and so forth. That's, that's a little bit d- different than the, sort of the scale of that and the power of that, I think, are, are different. And on one hand, it's wonderful because it can find somebody that I wouldn't have normally found yeah. that has, can be very valuable to me. But at the other hand, you know, it can also form a network that I wouldn't have formed in a, in a shape I wouldn't have formed it before. So, yeah, it's, it's hard. I, I don't see an easy answer to that, but I think no. the, the algorithms are sort of an interesting twist on all of this. And I think, you know, now there's a, one of the really f- hot areas that's growing up in, around computer science now is this sort of morality of algorithms and people realizing that, that they're learning from humans and reinforcing human tendencies mm. and doing things, you know, as privacy preservation and biases and all kinds yeah. of things. And, and they also are affecting the way that we connect and our basic social structures. Yeah. Interesting times. Well, look, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been wonderful, Danny. Thanks. Yeah. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Professor Jackson for taking the time to answer all my questions. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And I hope you enjoyed it so much that you now take a moment, and you know what I'm going to ask, to give a rating and a review of this podcast. And we will be back next week. And in the meantime, I'm writing about all kinds of stuff in the Sunday Times, which you can find, obviously, online at thetimes.co.uk. You can follow me on Twitter. You know, I'm not super-duper active on Twitter, I go through spurts, but I'm there, at Danny Fortson. Or you can email me if you have any comments, questions. If you think there's a guest you know of who should definitely come on, email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Until next week, have a good one. Bye-bye. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. 
Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, It's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan romash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information.